Hello, welcome to Akbar's Chamber. I'm your host, Niall Green. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about the Kalandars and other medieval dervish groups for whom absolute poverty was the overriding principle of being Muslim. So much so, in fact, that their renunciation of the world also at times involved renouncing the rules of Sharia. According to a famous hadith or saying of the Prophet Muhammad, Al-Faqr Fakhri, literally, poverty is my pride. That famous saying of the Prophet was taken by many Muslims to mean that poverty, spiritual poverty, but even real-life poverty, was the ultimate state of being a Muslim. It's the Arabic word used in that sentence, faqr, meaning poverty, that gives us the word faqir, a word that meant, literally, a world renouncer, a poor man. Faqir was one of a whole series of words associated with the Sufis, associated with world renouncers in Arabic and other Islamic languages. The word we'll be using today in particular is a word that actually comes from Persian, which is the word dervish. Dervish literally meant darvish, someone who wanders from doorway to doorway. Wandering from dar to dar, from door to door, doing what? Begging. Begging because these dervishes, these darvishes, like the fakirs, as they were sometimes called, had renounced the world, had taken a vow of literal as well as spiritual poverty, following then that saying of the prophet. There are also names, more particular and specific ones, for these medieval world renouncers. Kalandar was another. And that term we'll be looking at today. Particularly the groups of Kalandars and other world renouncing dervishes who not only gave up the vows of marriage, of ordinary social life, and sometimes the rules and regulations of Islamic law, of Sharia. But they also, in embracing absolute poverty then, renounced the rules and regulations of the medieval Sufi orders. These figures then, these antinomian dervishes, as they're sometimes called, the word antinomian means breaking rules or against the rules. These antinomian kalandars, dervishes, fakirs, spread particularly from the 12th and 13th century in what's now Iran, North India, as well as Anatolia, what's now Turkey, and through to the Balkans, Southeastern Europe and beyond. They rose then in the 13th century after a period when Sufism, Sufi Islam had already created 
series of institutions and regulations accepted the norms of ordinary Muslim life as well as the Sharia, including marrying, having children, and indeed living a productive life in society. Many Sufis had day jobs as well as being mystics. But for the antinomian, dervishes, faqirs, kalandars, they were having none of this. They renounced the world and renounced all of its ways. Shaving their heads, wearing animal skins, wandering from place to place with no fixed abode. Joining me and leading me in this exploration today of God's unruly friends, these medieval world and rural renouncing dervishes, is Ahmed Karamastafa. He's a professor and chair of the history department at the University of Maryland and, among many other works, is the author of God's Unruly Friends, Dervish Groups in the Islamic Later Middle Period, 1200 to 1550, which is published by the University of Utah Press in 1994. Hello, welcome to Akbar's Chamber. So today we're going to be talking about the the calendars and other types of antinomian dervishes. Antinomian meaning effectively the, the rule breakers or the law breakers. And we'll be discussing the, the ways in which Islam, a religion often associated with the law, the Sharia as its fundaments, also produced a, a series of religious figures who saw their religious uh, devotion, their religious, uh, in a sense, commitments is actually requiring them to break the norms, the laws of Islam, indeed, including the Sharia. And I'll be talking today with Professor Ahmed Karamustafa. So, Ahmed, welcome to Akbar's Chamber. Thank you, Niall. It's great to be in Akbar's Chamber. <laughs> well, it's wonderful to have you here. <laughs> so, to start us off, can you sketch for us the religious and cultural background to the rise of the Kalandars and the other rule-breaking antinomian dervishes whom you've aptly called God's unruly friends. Um, so I'll try to do that. It's, a, it's actually a difficult question that faced me when I first started with this project very early on in my career. It actually started back when I was a PhD student and uh, I sort of inadvertently perhaps backed into the subject. And once I actually got to know um, our unconventional uh, rule-breaking um, dervishes, um, it, uh, I had to struggle, to be frank, uh, to try to uh, place them into a larger context and, and to uh, answer precisely this question about, you know, where do they come from? Why did they appear? And what kind of cultural and social needs they were, um, uh, you know, meeting or addressing um, in, in their very peculiar uh, way of life. And um, it took me a while to come up with questions and I uh, with answers and I can say that actually my thinking um, about this um, 
has evolved over the years, even though I have you know, written this book that um, uh, is called God's Unruly Friends, and that was published, oh gosh, almost like 30 years ago now, um, I have had some opportunities to revisit the topic um, on and off. And uh, each time I did that, at least a couple of times, I actually came up with um, um, uh, angles that I had missed earlier or had underestimated or not simply uh, thought of. Um, and so uh, what I can tell right now is that the whole question of the cultural and religious background turns out to be a whole lot more complicated than I would have imagined. Let me just first say that nothing in my uh, doctoral education as a student of Islamic studies back at the Institute of Islamic Studies uh, uh, at McGill University, where I was a PhD student, had prepared me for, uh, for this subject when I, when I ran into it. Um, in fact, um, my familiarity with the existence of such types actually was only literary uh, until uh, I um, started this project in the sense that one of the key figures of Turkish speaking um, dervishes of this type, uh, his name is Kaigusuz Abdal, um, and um, uh, was a very good poet. And uh, uh, as someone who was into, who grew up in Turkey uh, uh, until college and uh, was very much into uh, literature and poetry, I had actually read some of his poems. And I only, and I could not particularly make heads and tails of them. They were great to read out loud, but I really didn't know what the heck he was talking about. And um, so I had had some familiarity, but of course it turns out to be just, uh, um, of a type that I could not place. So the answer actually has to do on the one hand with uh, the ongoing question of how people become um, Muslims and how they come into the orbit of Islam as a wider religious tradition on the one hand. And on the other hand, uh, within Islam, what kind of different strains of piety that they get exposed to and how uh, in the process, people who shall we say perhaps are Islamizing are in the process of becoming Muslims or have become Muslims, um, whether they know it or not <laughs> over several generations, um, begin to actually, shall we say, put together their own package of what it means to be Islam. So all that is to say one broad narrative within which they could be viewed is that of, um, uh, of Islamization, of putting together a self-understanding of who you are and where your religiosity and piety fits in within the larger uh, tradition that we call Islam, which is itself highly complex, highly um, variegated and, and diverse. So if you come into that orbit, you have to somehow find a place for yourself. For some, it might be 
a straightforward matter. They might inherit it from their parents, so to speak, or from their hometown. For others, it turns out to be a, a whole lot more complicated process of negotiation, struggle, uh, and one of rejection and uh, wholehearted uh, embrace of particular pre-existing, what I call modes of piety. Uh, it's difficult to tell. But for people who actually were coming into the uh, Islamic religious tradition, uh, one of the major strains that they would meet with was, of course, uh, Sufism, uh, and um, which, again, uh, is, I know is a topic that you worked on quite a bit, and it's a, one that is difficult to perhaps uh, uh, generalize on. But on the whole, let's just assume that it's a mode of a kind of religiosity, a kind of piety uh, that tries to combine different elements of uh, being Muslim, both in terms of uh, the social uh, and conventional methods of being a Muslim, which, which would include the Sharia, which would include uh, the norms and expected forms of behavior for a Muslim uh, as a, in society, as a person living in society. And on the other hand, also bring in uh, some other personal needs of uh, spirituality. These days, we uh, tend to differentiate between institutionalized religion and spirituality. It's not a differentiation that's always easy to make, but nevertheless. Let's assume that on top of uh, the larger social background within which uh, you, know, you live and the external observances that you may be exposed to as a part of your village or urban quarter or whatever you happen to live or tribe on the, on the one hand. And on the other hand, there may be some deeper needs as a, that we might call psychological, uh, 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 psychic, even if you will, um, uh, and spiritual needs that um, uh, you might want to explore on your on your own. And Sufism comes across as a particular combination of both these elements, the personal and the social. Let's call it that. And so, if you meet those, then you'd have to either um, um, accept one of the existing ones uh, in terms of what you can walk into, or you have to somehow, you know, pick and choose and put together a package of, of a, a kind of religiosity that appeals to you. Now, I think the calendars, if we could use that as a catch-all term for all our unconventional, um, at times definitely misfit, socially misfit types, um, but they are unconventional. They basically go against all social norms and, and religious norms. So that's the key thing to underline about them. They are not just breaking the religious law to the extent that they know about it in the first place, but they're also breaking uh, uh, social norms. Uh, and, uh, and by which I mean things like, uh, well, uh, working for a living. You know um, what? What? Uh, uh, or marriage, or having kids, uh, for that matter, or reproducing social relationships one way or another, uh, being happy in a larger kinship group, 
or accepting your social status as may be attributed to you by others, whether by class or caste or whatever it is. So uh, being unconventional means in this case for our dervishes, they basically reject and try to step out all of these social and religious conventions that are from one perspective, we can characterize those as mainstream social behavior, which most of us tend to be, whether we realize it or not, actually fit fairly well into mainstream social behavior. Even when times we are fooled into thinking that we are so uh, distinct, distinct and so, uh, shall we say, unique in our, in our individual personalities. Uh, these types are unconventional in that sense. So what I think how they fit into is the story is that on the one hand, these are people who are rather unhappy with existing social and religious uh, conventions for a variety of reasons. And we don't always have access to their you know, mind, you know, to their thoughts uh, directly. So a bit of this is conjectural, but by the same token, they are also moved by um, their own attempt to um, infuse their lives and uh, with meaning, a meaning of the type that actually aspects of the religious tradition make it possible for them to develop for themselves. So the story then is, we have people who are either already Muslim by background or are in the process of Islamizing from various different social backgrounds. And these could include uh, migrants of one kind or another, people who are already on the move for various reasons. These could include highly rooted people in agrarian or urban environments. Uh, and uh, these could also include very what we would call a sophisticated, high urban educated class. And uh, in their story of Islamization and in their story of trying to uh, make more sense of their existence using the tools and uh, the resources available to them through Islam, they actually end up developing this mode of piety that I call uh, dervish piety uh, of sorts, um, which tries to step out of the existing um, formulas of piety and concoct and develop a strikingly new and innovative and also highly unconventional uh, form of piety. So why does this happen? That still remains a uh, a very interesting question and not one that's always easy to answer globally for everyone. In the book that um, I ended up writing uh, years ago, God's Unreally Friends, I emphasized one particular, um, I think, element that led to the development of this kind of piety, which, is the, which was the fact that um, uh, there were many Sufis who tried to cultivate a, uh, what could be called a mystical form of piety uh, highly successfully for themselves, but ended up 
um, being very socially conventional types. What happened for Sufis is that whether they liked it or not, society embraced them and they embraced society. And uh, um, they did not really um, always manage to live perhaps at the margins or of society or on the fence, so to speak. They got integrated into the economic, political machinery that we call society in terms of income, in terms of uh, you know, marriage and having kids, and in terms of having connections with politicians and people in power. And so they were, to, not to put too fine a point on it, they were co-opted by society and, and with lots of benefits to everyone, including themselves and including uh, the society around them. And uh, so they became institutionalized. That's the term that I had used. In other words, Sufism generated highly respected and uh, institutions that got incorporated into the fabric of uh, Muslim majority uh, and at times Muslim minority societies. And uh, uh, our calendars, our unconventional types found that this process of co-optation essentially led to a dilution of their spirituality and of their religiosity and through aspect of their piety. So the reaction was to this institutionalization. That's the first kind of explanation. Well, thanks, Ahmed. That's that's really helpful because you you you've you've given us a sense of of, of two things broadly. One, the the that these calendars, these antinomian, these rule-breaking dervishes, breaking social as well as religious norms, um, are not just, in a sense, marginal figures to how we think about Islam. They can be very foundational because, as you've said, when, when whole regions of, of the world, what we now think was the Islamic world, particularly Anatolia, what's now Turkey, when this is being converted partly to, to Islam, particularly after the the Battle of Manzikert in 1071 and the following centuries as, as various Turkic, Turkish root sultanates uh, established and then indeed the Ottoman uh, Empire ultimately. This is the question, well, what is this Islam that's being, you know, being accepted? So this is a very kind of foundational question. And then the other element that you, you've, you've flagged up for us, which is very important, is is that this is also a movement, the development of these calendars, this antinomian dervish piety is also development within Islam that is happening in many ways really from the, the 12th, particularly the 13th century onwards, which is to say around 600 years into the history of Islam and certainly 600 years as the Sufis would see it, but as anyone, a scholar of Sufi Islam would say, well, this is a good sort of, you know, perhaps four or 500 years into the, the history of, of, of Sufism. And what you've also kind of flagged up for us then is by this point in the circa 1200 of the common or Christian era, by this point, Sufi Islam has becoming already an establishment Islam. The Sufi orders, the Turuk, the Sufi orders, in a sense, the parallel to the Christian monastic orders are becoming very wealthy. They're institutionalized with their own rules and regulations in addition to the Sharia, the kind of monastic rules, as it were. But in a key difference then of the Sufis with, uh, with the Christian monastic orders is that Sufi masters are expected to marry 
and have children, as the Prophet Muhammad did as part of that norm of the Sunnah. And so what we're seeing then with these calendars and this type of antinomian dervish piety is saying, well, as you said, we don't want to marry. We don't want to settle down. We want to roam. We don't want to follow the rules of your Sufi orders, nor indeed perhaps the rules of the Sharia, insofar as they were known then, perhaps among some of these newly converted communities, regions, or indeed individuals, uh, and neither social norms of having a job. And this is kind of an important difference as well. When we think of most of the, the early formative, often called the classical Sufis, we know by their names, or we sort of uh, interpret by their names, figures like uh, Al-Halaj, the wool carder, a carder of wool, someone who's sort of basically in the, the, the textile business or textile industry, or Khayyam, if we consider him a Sufi, a tent maker, uh, or Atar, the great Sufi poet, who's sort of, you know, a, a perfumer. We know that there were, or scholars have deduced, that they were actually from these kind of urban uh, kind of artisanal, or at least kind of working backgrounds. So this is a real difference as well, rejecting social norms of having a job as well as being perhaps a, a, a mystic or religious teacher. But it's ultimately in, let's say, the behavior uh, of the of these calendars that they really kind of most stand out and that's a behavior that as you already hinted kind of caught the the attention and and certainly the the affection of a great many of the more literary or settled urban respectable dervishes non-sufis no more famous than than rumi and uh his great attraction to his own right. teacher shams tabarizi who died in 12 1248 and as you've written in your book, was at least the, one of the Kalandar dervish groups was named in his honor. So Rumi wrote a whole a whole divan of poetry, the Divani Shamsi Tabrizi. So we have this literary record then that, that you, you mentioned as in poetry as well as in the biographies that you worked on in your book, the biographies of these rule breakers. So what then were these breaking of rules then? What were these defining behavioral characteristics of these kalandars and other antinomial dervishes, whether in terms of their dress, their behavior, or indeed what we can piece together of their beliefs? So um, it turns out, Niall, that um, one of the first realizations that um, uh, you arrive at when you dig deeper into the subject is that even though uh, we've agreed, you and I, for the purposes of this conversation that we could call them calendars, it turns out actually they had a whole bunch of different names. Uh, not that the same phenomenon had different names, it's just so happens that it was actually a bundle of different types of dervishes um, who we run into uh, in um, a broad geographical area during the time periods that we're talking about starting the 12th century and all the way into the 16th century and up until today in, in particular pockets. Um, so uh, that's the first thing that we need to establish is that we have a number of different groups uh, and they actually cultivate somewhat different identities uh, 
across space and time for a period of, at least for a, for a period that we could trace. So calendars happens to be, calendar happens to be one of those. Though that's the one that actually enters uh, the literary traditions of some languages, including Persian, obviously the most important, and then the Turkish, and then uh, several others as well. Um, uh, since it's, it becomes a literary trope, it lends itself to more general use, as opposed to some of the other names that remain confined to particular uh, historical sources, such as Haideris, or the ones that you just mentioned, Shams et Tabrizis. Now, you don't hear, you hear a lot about Shams of Tabriz uh, when you uh, talk about um, Jalaluddin Rumi, Maulana, uh, but you don't ever hear about dervishes that actually somehow are perpetuating his example. Uh, or Jamis, you hear, you may hear, if you're a real Sufism student, <laughs> you may hear about Ahmed of Jam uh, as, an, as a significant early uh, Sufi figure in uh, Iran, present-day Iran, uh, but you might not ever know that there were dervishes um, of the type that we're talking about here who went around reciting supposedly poetry written by Ahmed of Jam, even though we have no record uh, <laughs> that Ahmed of Jam himself composed poetry uh, and uh, acting in very strange ways. So what I'm trying to say is that first, uh, the question of defining characteristics, we end up um, having to sort of gather evidence on the basis of um, lots of different groups that seem to be linked in their religiosity, but then bundling them together and talk about them in a, as a generality of unconventional uh, itinerant, you know, mendicant begging dervishes of one kind or another. So uh, when, when we talk about their defining characteristics, then we are just basically generalizing, right? Um, uh, I think on the to get back to your to the heart of your question, on, on one side, I already mentioned some of the defining characteristics in terms of their social profiles. You know, they don't work for a living. They don't get married. Some of them, uh, they're, for practical purposes, they're celibate. Uh, uh, in terms of their sexual orientation, there is, of course, no clear evidence, but it's clear that some of them are perhaps engaging in homoerotic or other kinds of um, sexualities that are not mainstream to the extent that we could tell that, that the, again, the information is not always readily available or, or rather scant. Um, uh, they re refuse basically to belong to any larger social group of one kind or another. Uh, no social larger group identity ad, ap apart from the dervish group that they may belong to. Um, they do not, uh, since they don't get married, but they also do not believe in sexual reproduction. They, in other words, they don't have kids. <laughs> let's, let's put it this way. They don't pay much attention to questions of bodily health and sanity and you know, issues that we're all obsessed with, generally speaking. Um, and then they tend to be also, even at times, um, um, uh, 
uh, hard on themselves. They are, and they tend to be ascetic in practice, which basically means they impose hardships on themselves, whether in form of hunger, sleeplessness, extreme tiredness, constant travel, uh, uh, exposure to the elements, not wearing proper dress uh, to protect yourself from uh, you know, uh, the elements and all that sort of stuff. Um, in perhaps most uh, um, uh, striking were their appearances, of course, and uh, their rejection of social, um, the social mainstream manifested itself in the form of, let's say, practices that we are more familiar with in the, uh, in the, from the late 20th century onwards here, complete shaving of the head, uh, for instance, and uh, or complete shaving of all facial hair, which was less uh, common, uh, uh, which was not common back in uh, the period, periods that we're talking about, meaning shaving your beard, mustache, your eyebrows, <laughs> and even taking out the eyelashes and, and, and such. Uh, not wearing proper dress, as I indicated, which means going around in animal hides, uh, or felt cloaks or uh, scampy dress of one kind or another, or just a, an apron-like thing to cover the private parts. At times, not even do that, go around naked. Um, and then also have uh, some paraphernalia like, you know, iron collars, iron bracelets, um, iron rings. Rings were common among, among uh, males, uh, everywhere but uh, earrings but not of the type that these guys wore uh, so comparable to the you know oftentimes you say comparable to the heavy metals um, uh, of, of the punk era of the late 20th century and so on so in appearance they're quite uh, strikingly different and um, they also tend to of course, not generally speaking, not be settled in one place uh, and be constantly traveling around. So we call them itinerant uh, to address that. Since they are not working for a living, they also have to either survive on, you know, fruits and uh, other things that they can uh, gather, uh, like foraging, I suppose, but mostly through begging and other people's basically generosity towards them in terms of feeding these dervishes. Uh, and uh, so um, these are perhaps some of the most um, uh, unconventional uh, characteristics. They also, of course, uh, carry around some of them large clubs holding in their hands, and they have some peculiar other kinds of things that they would want to wear. Some of them are tattooed in particular ways or they um, uh, cauterize their particular arms of their bodies like the forearms or, um, and so these are all forms of behavior that are actually quite flagrantly uh, going against established norms of their social society. So these are some of the, uh, behaviors. Uh, in terms of their beliefs, their beliefs are more difficult to reach, um, but we are lucky in the sense that we do have uh, not only some, eventually some poetry, but also we have um, 
some uh, hagiographies, sacred biographies of uh, particular figures, uh, in particular Jamal al-Din Jamal al-Din-Savi, who uh, is known to be the the person who gave shape to the Kalenderi dervish group, and we have a hagiography of him written by a follower. Uh, among the uh, among the types that become popular in Anatolia in the 14th and 15th centuries, we have several hagiographies that are devoted to some of the leaders there. We have slightly less comparable, not full biographies, but again, available material for South Asia in the, in the same time period. Uh, and so if we could put all the evidence there and actually look into their beliefs, it does appear to be the case that one of the things that they emphasize, one of the things that they emphasize more than anything else perhaps is the belief in sainthood, uh, and uh, which is of course a mainstream uh, Sufi idea as well. Uh, but their idea of sainthood essentially um, goes against um, um, any of the ones that we know from uh, more respectable Sufi literature uh, on the whole. So in other words, they would basically be of the view that they are following the true Islamic path. Uh, and by devoting themselves solely and only to God and turning their backs on society. As far as they are concerned, uh, regular social existence, social life involves turning away from God. Not to, you know, not, uh, it's a big generalization, but um, essentially they feel that people are um, too buried in their social concerns and, and, uh, uh, and their personal needs and social needs and social identities, and they neglect God. And the only way to do that is to turn yourself back to society and reject it and, and at the same time, do it in such a way that the rest of society actually gets the message from you that you are the true saints. <laughs> that, that the unconventional ones are the only ones who truly believe and who truly are ready to put everything they have on the line for God and uh, take themselves out of society in order to hold themselves up as a mirror back to society and to let everyone know that they have veered away from the true path of, of religiosity, of being a, a good Muslim, because you need to really devote yourself to God full-time at all costs. And so their lifestyle, therefore, their defining characteristics, perhaps builds as, as a reflection of this belief that uh, rejecting mainstream society and rejecting established religion, established politics, established everything is the only way forward uh, for human beings who really want to actually experience God and channel divine energy to 
the rest of humanity. And that's how they managed to put themselves forward as a beacon of, shall we say, religion, you know, true Islam for everyone to around them to, to follow, or at least acknowledge, you know, I may, I may not be able to follow your path. It's too hard for me. Sorry. I'm, <laughs> you know, I, I, I love my house and I love my kids and I love my wife and I'm not going to uh, abolish all that. And I like eating too much, <laughs> eating good food, <laughs> and I'm not going to expose myself to uh, hor horrific heat and, and extreme cold and all that sort of stuff. But I really admire you guys. And I'm going to be, I'm going to donate food to you. I'm going to um, worship you in my own way. I'm going to treat you as a saint, essentially. And that's what turns out to be the case for the most part, I would say. So that we can talk about that aspect of things now in terms of how they came across to, to their, to people, uh, you know, outside the dervish communities. Well, thank you, Ahmed. You've given us a really kind of vivid sense of uh, of the the striking appearance, and no doubt also uh, at least on a hot summer's day, the the striking smell of these uh, these guys as they wandered guys, into town. Yeah. You, you you mentioned that you know in some ways they might look like heavy metal fans, or you know, or might say punks or skinheads, hippies, not least with their you know kind of a public display of the use of hashish and sometimes other intoxicants. And yet, as you've made very clear, there's this crucial difference. This isn't a movement of fashion. That's even if that was a concept at that period, maybe it wasn't me, it wasn't, they would have certainly have renounced that too, because this is about the absolute embrace of poverty and of negation of the body, making oneself uncomfortable as well as unattractive uh, as part of this path of piety through poverty and seeing that as the, as the true Islam, as you said. It makes me think, of course, of, the, of that very famous hadith, that saying of the Prophet Muhammad, al-Faqr al-Fakhri, poverty is my pride. That notion that the, the poverty, spiritual, but for the, these calendars and other dervishes, also absolute living poverty, just metaphorical poverty. The, perhaps the poverty that they saw the establishment Sufis having with their land holdings and their their lodges and their families, etc. Metaphorical or spiritual poverty wasn't enough. It had to be inner and outer, which is in a sense a very normative, actually, in Islamic notion of the zahir and the batin, the inner and the outer should be in a certain kind of harmony and, and uh, an integrity between the two. So they're trying to live like, as you said, to live like saints, the 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 normative Islamic language word in Arabic, other languages, awliya, the, the friends of God, those who are closest to God, and those who are closest right. to God then come close to God through this extreme poverty. And yet, even though they're not a fashionable movement as such, or they're not, you know, kind of, they're not doing this for the sake of fashion, they do somehow appeal to some of the urban Muslim literati, figures like Maulana Rumi, the most famous of Sufi poets, who we've already mentioned then, who writes a lot of sort of poems and others do about these calendars, and in his case, one in particular, Shams of, Shams of Tabriz. So could you explain to us more fully then what did make these, these antinomian, rule-breaking dervishes so appealing to their followers? And 
perhaps spell out to us a bit more what it was that made them so disturbing to their critics? The question of appeal, um, which we sort of began to broach, um, again, um, is a bit difficult to address, but uh, over the years, um, I've been thinking about this. I um, have come to also realize that um, this whole question of appeal of a particular type of um, sanctity, let's say, or particular type of sainthood or particular type of piety cannot really be divorced from this larger question of uh, that we started out with what Islam means and how, how do we even begin to um, deal with the question of how people meet Islam, how people actually come to know the Islamic religious tradition. When we ask that larger question, then, it, then I think we also need to acknowledge the fact that while on the one hand, over the first half millennium, five, 600 years of Islamic history, certain um, established traditions develop of, let's say among them, the legal tradition, the Sharia, uh, a scholarship on the Quran, scholarship on the Hadith, scholarship on uh, basically the law and scholarship on theology. All these kinds of things develop and urban, in urban contexts, especially for upper middle uh, uh, classes uh, and elites, uh, certain modes of piety begin to take shape. There is the larger question of the great majority of people out there in a largely uh, agrarian society, largely rural, the, we talk, you know, our largest towns on the whole are between 20 to 100,000. There's our large towns. I mean, we have exceptions like Baghdad and, and others you know, over the years, but the uh, great majority live in the countryside, either as peasants or as nomads. And then you have to ask the question, what do they know about Islam? Now, this is, of course, one of the great unknowns for pre-modern Islamic history. Generally speaking, the religiosity of the masses uh, escape the, um, uh, the, you know, all the attempts of the historians to, <laughs> to fully address uh, uh, this question. To, uh, to, uh, uh, what did they know about Islam? And uh, well, how did they come to meet with Islam? In what form, where? And uh, when you ask that question, at least it becomes obvious that even for the earlier, what we sometimes call the classical period or the high caliphal period to use a specific term that you will know uh, from Marshall Hudson, a great majority of people whom we sort of assume to be Muslims were not really aware of anything about the Sharia or did not really know about the, much about the Quran, if anything. And uh, since they didn't live in towns, they did not really come into contact with the ulama or, or any other cultural elite for that matter. So then the, when you put it this way, in terms of access to the established uh, norms and traditions uh, of the religious tradition, then you realize all of a sudden that the great majority of people, no matter what their language, this includes colloquial Arabic and not 
the learned Arabic, the fusha that uh, the learned elite will cultivate uh, and use in their um, scholarship. Uh, but all the other religious, all the other linguistic traditions that are now coming into the fold of Islam, there are there are Persian speakers, there are Turkish speakers, there are all the different languages, the immensely rich uh, linguistic traditions of South Asia, Central Asia, Africa coming into the fold. And these people are all supposed to somehow um, make sense of or know in the first place the uh, what, what I've called the established traditions and norms and expectations and conventions of Islam as a religious tradition. Well, the answer is no, they didn't. They don't even know that even in large urban centers, uh, especially if they're from what we would call the working classes or wage laborers or the, the hangers on, uh, the, the uh, precarious laborers and the underworld and all that. Uh, their knowledge of Islam is questionable. So the great advantage that our dervishes had over their competition in terms of carriers of Islam. The great advantage that they had was that A, they were migrants. They were all over the place. They did not, you know, somehow go out and establish themselves as hermits in the desert, unlike uh, early Christian ascetics, for instance, or uh, uh, they did not simply disappear into a forest and never were seen again. They actually walked and roamed the countryside and went into villages uh, and went into towns and they were constantly visible. So that was a great advantage. They were always visible as personifications of sanctity and they could be seen as such because of their highly striking, unconventional appearance, and which was a demonstration of their devotion and of their, shall we say, authenticity to begin with. I mean, who could beat that? And uh, secondly, another advantage that they had is that they actually spoke in the colloquial, in the colloquial languages of wherever they were from. And uh, I think that's an important element to add that there was a linguistic, there was a dimension to this, that, that they actually spoke the language of the people. And um, now what they said might be, again, we have to patch it back together depending on the literary tradition we're looking at, uh, whether it's Persian, Arabic, or, or whether it happens to be early forms of Hindustani or whatever uh, context that we're, we're operating in. And, um, uh, but it, it, it is quite clear that they were not separated from everyday and for everyday communication purposes from the peoples around whom, um, you know, they basically um, uh, did their roaming. So there was no linguistic divide and also there was no social or uh, status divisions of one kind. They were highly approachable in that sense. And uh, uh, so I think what made them appealing was that 
they were really um, mobile <laughs> uh, and highly accessible and very attractive in terms of attention, <laughs> though not always attractive in terms of a lifestyle. Uh, they were focused as foci of uh, moving beacons of religiosity that, that you could simply attach yourself to or at least admire from a distance and see as authentic. I think that made them also particularly accessible to particular rural and migrant types, other migrants to begin with. We have lots of other migrants for various reasons, either laborers or uh, singers and entertainers. We've got the Roma coming into view so far as we could tell uh, with possible origins in South Asia originally, but then they're all around. We have other migrant communities. And then we've got, of course, nomads and, uh, and others that are also on the move. So already there are other migrants who might like to perhaps appreciate this particular type for their you know, lifestyle, let's put it this way. Um, and and um, there are also uh, peasants and villages who are villagers who are barely touched by uh, uh, the trappings of urban Islam. Uh, there are no mosques in the villages and and we should not assume so unless we have actual architectural evidence, which we, uh, um, you know, have a difficult time discovering uh, because we need more Islamic architecture of this type uh, done. Thankfully, that's happening a bit. But uh, anyway, we should not assume that they came into contact, villages come into contact regularly with uh, these people. So then who is available to them? These migrant dervishes who live out the true life of devotion and piety. And one final thought, it's not just um, these people, also some highly disenchanted intellectuals <laughs> and uh, shall we say um, uh, people who opt out of uh, established social life if they need to really abandon their lifestyles, there was always a ready-made option for them. You could go join a band of wandering dervishes. And that's, that's the way to basically say, okay, enough. I've had enough of this <laughs> uh, life that, uh, that, that is not any good for me, that has nothing good in for me, uh, and, and I'm going to become a calendar, and I leave my career. And, uh, and we have quite a few examples of that. So this is to basically give you an example of their appeal to various different types of people from all walks of life. So yes, you've, you've given us a sense then that the, the, there's a certain kind of appeal of a uh, like Puccini's La Boheme, isn't these sort of, you know, kind of urban, more kind of uh, intelligentsia have a, uh, a drawn whether really to, the, to actually follow the lifestyles or at least to celebrate the lives of these, these dervishes. But there's also these many other kind of, let's say, broadly speaking, lower class and migrant groups who, of course, have they're, they're very different communities crossing Anatolia and Iran and indeed into the Balkans. You mentioned the Roma, 
there are there are Muslim Roma, of course, as well as the various different uh, tribal groups speaking different Turkic languages, as as well as um, indeed you know kind of Persian or varieties thereon, or indeed as you mentioned Hindustani in, in North India, where these places are being ruled by North India is being ruled by. Uh, Muslim Turkic sultans in this period, and it has the, the normative institutions, the mosques, the madrasas, the Sufi convents and so on, but these antinomian dervishes also have an appeal there. And then we know about them then as enabling you to, to write your book and indeed allowing Muslims to, to celebrate or indeed critique them over the centuries. There's a certain literature, isn't there, whether in, in classical Persian or indeed in old Anatolian Turkish that, that you, and you've studied these, these various works themselves. So could you tell us something about this, this literature of the Kalandars and the other dervishes, whether poems, hagiographies or whatever else, whether in Persian or early versions of Turkish? Sure. So there is of course, this literary dimension to the subject. And um, um, I think on the whole, we can differentiate between um, um, materials that actually were produced by the dervishes themselves that are, are, are unconventional antinomian dervishes themselves or their followers on the one hand. And on the other hand, we can also um, point out that in uh, uh, the literary traditions uh, of Turkish, Persian, Arabic, um, uh, in this period anyway, um, we also see the reflection uh, of uh, this kind of piety uh, in the form of images, tropes, in fact, at times even subgenres of uh, uh, poetry that develop. So, so to take them in, in that order, on the one hand, we have um, um, definitely uh, not as much, but definitely material uh, that we can trace back to the dervishes themselves. Uh, I, for one, wish that there was more. I mentioned the hagiographies before there are some, and I mentioned at the very beginning of our conversation, a figure called Kaigo Suzabdal, um, who uh, um, is, you know, I was, I was, what I didn't mention back then is um, back at the beginning of my graduate work, I actually wanted to work on him uh, and I was collecting some uh, notes on the manuscripts uh, of his works and then you know, my car was broken into and my notes were stolen. I took that as a sign from on high that I should not yet be working on that because I, I, I just simply couldn't, I didn't have the wherewithal to, to handle this guy. Uh, thankfully, these days our colleague, my younger colleague Zeynep Oktay, whom I believe you may have had on, a, on, an, on, the, on, on one of your programs is working on, has been working on Kaibus Zabdal. Um, but anyway, uh, so we have, for instance, many works of his, and, uh, and uh, but that's unusual. We do not have uh, much literature uh, produced by the dervishes themselves, um, except for those hagiographies, hagiographies that I mentioned. 
On the other side, however, as classical Persian literature or classical, you know, our old Anatolian Turkish and then Ottoman Turkish, um, we have major appearances of the Kalender figure uh, and uh, these antinomian types in poetry, at times even in the form of whole poems devoted to them, in which case in Persian in particular, we call them the Kalenderiyat, um, uh, and they go back to the 12th century actually, starting with Sanahi uh, and, uh, and, and on. Um, uh, at other times, they're just images and they're just tropes. Uh, but it becomes a highly established part of uh, the repertoire of classical Persian and then Turkish, uh, to a slightly less extent, Arabic, not, it, it doesn't have the same uh, manifestation there at all, but it is there in 13th century Arabic for sure, uh, and then appears in 14th century as well. Um, um, there is this idea that the unconventional dervish represents true religiosity. And uh, whereas the externally ascetic, you know, observant figure, Zahid is the, would be the term or Zahid in the Persian pronunciation, would be actually the fraudulent imposter type, or at least one who has lost the path. Uh, because they are just so absorbed in the external observances that they lose the connection with God. So the emergence of the trope of Kalender, of the, of the libertine Rind in Persian, and, uh, and, and its counterpart, uh, uh, the, the false saints, the Zahids, is a major strain that blooms into a whole trope, a set of tropes that sometimes in Persian we call it the kharabat complex. Kharabat uh, meaning basically taverns, the ruins, those places that undesirable elements in society frequented, which of course included our dervishes. <laughs> they, they also frequented the ruins and they did not, you know, nowhere was off limits as far as they were concerned. Uh, uh, so, so the idea basically that true religiosity can be found only outside mainstream social life actually has a literary manifestation and a very rich literary manifestation, which then turns into deliberate criticism of existing, uh, you know, whether it's Sufi or legalistic or it doesn't matter, existing, established, prevalent forms of piety in Islam. So if you wanted to critique them, poetry gave you uh, the means to be able to do that and do that in their face, because this was poetry that was cultivated by everyone, including the religious scholars themselves. <laughs> so which, which leads to all sorts of, uh, you know, very interesting twists and turns uh, but it's a bit like wine poetry, how it becomes part of the poetic uh, um, repertoire and everyone actually makes use of it, even though, of course, uh, technically wine is off limits for, for Muslims, but it's 
features very highly in all major traditions of Muslim uh, led poetry, let's shall we say. And so it's a bit like that, uh, this figure of the calendar and accompanying images that go along with it uh, have a literary life and that continues all the way through these traditions uh, up until the present. So there's kind of this paradox then, isn't there, Ahmed, that, that you've explained to us, that these figures are very much very deliberately on the margins of society, or certainly the margins of high and respectable society, and yet they often take center place in literary traditions, whether vernacular or indeed the kind of classical sort of Persian literary traditions, uh, being these figures of the acme of Islam. These are the, the true Muslims, the true authority, the ones who are the, the true saints, in a sense. And I think perhaps it's worth noting as well for listeners that when we talk about poetry, at least lyrical poetry, these are sort of, in a sense, kind of lyrics that would be sung and often sung in, to celebrate these calendars in some parts of the world, certainly India, Pakistan, still to this day. So though we've been talking mainly about the, the medieval period, um, what, if anything, is the living legacy of these calendars and other antinomian dervishes today? Right, so this brings us to um, the part of the equation that uh, I, as a pre-modernist and medievalist, am less equipped to, to deal with. Um, of course, since, you know, as long as you work on a subject, then you get interested in it and you try to follow all the, all the literature in terms of people's publications, whether they're anthropologists or ethnomusicologists or whatever else on these kinds of groups. So I have done the same. Uh, but uh, broadly speaking, I think one thing we can say, Niall, is that um, whatever we think it is, modernity has not been kind to our unconventional types, uh, which is rather odd as another, another uh, I suppose, puzzle. Um, at times, uh, modernity has not been very good in dealing with existing diversity on the ground, uh, um, as for instance, I think is the case in sexual orientation uh, and the, the, the uh, up until the last few decades, the imposition of heterosexuality um, in, in terms of the globe across the globe and how that became normative, for instance, I think is an, is an example of how uh, modernity is not always uh, uh, the best sets the best con of conditions for uh, unconventional and diverse uh, life patterns. Let's put it this way. Uh, that certainly was appears to have been the case for our uh, migrant, uh, uh, you know, wandering dervish types. I think on the whole, going into the twentieth century, they begin to uh, recede from view. Uh, especially around the Mediterranean, with the exception of perhaps a bit of uh, in, in Morocco, a bit longer, they hang on there. But um, uh, in South Asia, they probably continued to have much more vibrancy up until today, 
especially in Pakistan and as parts of India. And in Central Asia, much I think after the Soviet period, it's very difficult to even find any traces so far as I know. Uh, I be ready to be corrected uh, by my Central Asianist friends and colleagues, but I certainly do not know of anything from the 20th century. So, so there we are in Iran, uh, the, uh, the Khaksars as they were known as a, as a, as a sort of a major congla conglomeration of these dervishes. They also begin to phase out of view. Uh, but in Pakistan and in, the, uh, in India, especially around particular shrines, we continue to actually see this particular life of way cultivated. They are studied, they were studied by some of our colleagues, uh, anthropologists, Kathy Ewing to, to uh, a religious studies and anthropology uh, colleague who, uh, who has studied them, for instance, um, a, a German colleague, uh, uh, Jürgen Fremgen is the, of course, as you know, um, the, the person who has worked quite a lot in these contexts. So, but they are much diminished in numbers and also in stature and uh, came up uh, and came under quite a lot of pressures, social and otherwise, um, which I consider it to be again an irony of our times that uh, this particular way of life that actually managed to reach so many people and actually act as social commentary on the whole of society and uh, sort of function as a part of the broader conscience of, <laughs> of human, collect human communities uh, everywhere is sort of being squeezed out because perhaps we don't no longer have <laughs> the patience and the tolerance and uh, the ability to uh, learn and uh, you know uh, from them and nourish ourselves, even if only by just admiring them from a distance <laughs> and not joining them, but uh, seeing their example. Well, you've certainly allowed us vicariously uh, through through the internet at least to to learn something and acknowledge the the importance of this centuries-long tradition within islam of the kalandars and the other uh, unruly friends of god as you so memorably called them professor ahmed kala mustafa thank you so much for speaking to us in akbar's chamber it's it's been a pleasure thank you so much niall Da 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 da